0: this is they must be destroyed on site a movie podcast and i am joined by my awesome co-host daniel harper and paul how are you doing dan
2: i'm a little bit drunk but it'll be awesome so yeah feeling good feeling good
0: awesome how are you doing paul i am dismally sober <laughs> and that's the only one who's sober cuz i'm also kind of drunk at this point as well so
2: it should maybe it should we make... rotate between cuz last week i was the sober
0: one so you know It should make for an interesting podcast, I believe. I just want to make a really quick note here first. In previous episodes, if you are a casual listener or a constant listener, you would have heard we say this is Slasher Month. I changed that to Slasher Series because I'm going to be fucking working the next couple weeks on Fridays, so it's going to kind of interfere for a fucking recording schedule. So it's going to be Slasher Series. I don't even know why I didn't. Make it slasher series in the first place. I should have learned better with the sex comedy series, where we where it went what three fucking months almost, where it was supposed to be a month. Yeah, it, it's a slasher series, so it's we'll only
2: because we're horribly unprofessional about recording this podcast.
0: Well, yeah, we're we're incredibly unprofessional, but that's more my fault than my co host's fault. This week we're going to be looking at some slasher films, but before we get into that, we'll get into what we've been watching in the last week or so. And I'll go to you, Daniel, first, because I know you have a couple things.
2: Sure. Uh, I watched two movies that are worth talking about. First, which I don't think anybody is interested in, uh, was a movie, a Kristen Wiig vehicle called Welcome to Me, which is streaming on Netflix right now. It is a movie where Kristen Wiig plays a woman with uh, borderline personality disorder, who uh, wins $86 million in the lottery and decides she wants to be the next Oprah, uh, which (laughs) sounds terrible, but is actually much (laughs) more interesting than the logline gives it credit for. It's got a really amazing cast. Tim Robbins is in it, uh, Wes Bentley, James Marsden, uh, Linda Cardellini, uh, a bunch of other people that you probably would recognize if you watched the film. It is a uh, really... It follows the line quite nicely in terms of tone, in terms of finding this kind of really interesting way of kind of both being about Kristen Wiig's, uh, her character's mental health issues, and about the way that the world around her interacts with her, and about the way that the kind of media culture at large interacts with uh, people who are very clearly not well which is something that if you're here in the United States and you're watching the Donald Trump craziness on your television, where he's running for president, you will uh, recognize some of the uh, things. It borrows a lot from Network. It borrows a bit from Synecdoche, New York. It borrows from a lot of other things. It's interesting. It's imperfect. It's not nearly as big as some of those other films. But I think it's probably worth watching if you're a movie fan. I, I had a good time watching it. I mean, my wife just kind of threw it on, just like, "Oh, this is going to be stupid." Uh, we'll turn it off after five minutes. And so we ended up watching the whole thing, and it's it's interesting. And um, I would recommend that people watch it. It's it's worth a it's worth a watch. Nice. Uh, streaming on Netflix if you're uh, so inclined.
0: Yeah, I like Kristen Wiig, so I might yeah. check that out.
2: If you if you like her in Brightsmaids, it's you know she's very good at playing these kind of damaged characters and playing them in a way that is likable, but without like uh, diminishing their damaged qualities and that's definitely something that's on full display here so uh, definitely worth watching. The other film that I watched uh, is a little bit more of a uh, full on thumbs up on is An Honest Liar yeah, uh, which is the uh, James <laughs> Randi documentary. Uh, James Randi being the uh, former uh, escape artist yeah. magician who turned full time skeptic uh, he's the one who started the Million Dollar Challenge challenging anyone who thought they had psychic powers to demonstrate those psychic powers, and no one ever claimed it. And it's sort of about his life and career, and in the final third, turns turns into a bit of a uh, meditation on the nature of truth and about uh, what it is to try to do good things in the public eye. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think you've also seen this, Lee, so you might have some comments on it as well.
0: It's so good. It, it's such a great documentary. Like, James Randi has been a hero of mine for years, and this is a really good insight into his personal life. Um, it's, it's very, very good. I mean, most people just know him from his sort of public persona, and he'll admit to you that he is uh, a, a stage actor. You know, he's a, he's a person who puts on a persona, in the early in his career, he was very much a magician who was into just duping people and fooling people, and he realized that he did not want to do that for profit. He did not want to fool people and just lie to people, so he basically changed his career midway through to being honest about what he does and what magic is really about, and the fact that he does that doesn't really diminish magic because magic is still, it's sleight of hand, it's amazing, and it's very fun to watch. He made his crusade to go after charlatans who tried to use that sort of same mentality to hurt people, or possibly hurt people at the very least, like uh, Uri Geller, who is one of the worst fucking scumbags The final third of the film is quite the ironic twist. Uh, He spent his life debunking lies, and then he runs into a situation in his personal life where lies come to the forefront. And, uh, I mean, he says first off in, in the documentary that even the most educated, rational person can be fooled, and that comes... Basically, full circle for him because at the end of the film, he is fooled uh, to a, to a certain degree.
2: Well, and, th- there there is a question, and I don't want to get into the details of the film because I think mm-hmm. people should see it. But I don't think he's even fooled. I think that the issue is the the honest liar, where the the whole point is I'm lying, but for a greater purpose. I am. <laughs> lying about what I'm saying to entertain you, and then later I am uh, lying and pulling out frauds in order to demonstrate the larger frauds, you know, without giving away the ending, there is a a point of like, well, do the ends justify the means to a certain degree? Yeah, And uh, I think that that's something that the film explores. I think that uh, this film... The reason I didn't watch it when I first saw it was because I thought it was kind of be a, a little bit of a hagiography, you know, just a little bit of a, uh, you know, a little blowjob to James Randi. Not that I, uh, I would personally give a blowjob to James Randi. Uh, I do have some issues with some things that he's done uh, in terms of his uh, work within the atheist and free thought community. Skeptic community, uh, especially in his uh, later years, but that's not a, a discussion for right now. Uh, but he is undeniably one of the great figures of that community. And the film, you know, it looked at, at first glance to be something that was just going to, like, say, oh, what a great man James Randi is. But it ends up being much more complex in terms of uh, Randi's legacy. And uh, while it is by no means a full picture of the man's life, I think it uh, really gives... If you don't know anything about Randy, I think you're going to learn a lot. I knew about 95% of what's in this film... And I, uh, I found it fascinating, and my wife actually watched it with me, and she didn't know a lot of it, and she was just hooked immediately. So yeah. uh, absolutely worth a watch. If you have Netflix, I think both of those films are, are absolutely worth uh, watching, um, particularly An Honest Liar. If you're a uh, kind of thinker, skeptic, <laughs> rationalist like me, definitely check it out.
0: Yeah, it's a great introduction, it's, it's It's an excellent fucking documentary. Uh, Paul anything you've seen in the last little while you want to talk about
3: well I've just been uh I've been focusing on since I'm a shitty reader but a good listener I've been focusing on H.P. Lovecraft audiobooks lately I've been doing uh-huh. a lot of those and catching up on what he's done uh the only thing I've really been watching if I chance to sit down and and enjoy uh the show fringe for a while oh really and I find that very watchable even though I you know I just got my wife's already into a couple seasons of it I just i some reason to find that show, I can sit down and watch it easily. I, like, I seem to enjoy that show quite a bit. It's, uh, just, very, it's
2: very good popcorn TV. I, I would agree with I,
3: that. I, I like it. I, for some reason, I just I can just watch it for a long time. We were talking about Dog Soldiers there for a second. Was it uh, Sean Pertwee? Yeah, sh- yeah,
0: Sean Pertwee, yeah.
3: Pertwee? Sean Pertwee, yeah. He was uh, Sergeant G. Wells in, in that show. And uh, actually, Liam Cunningham actually played in Doctor Who, too, apparently. Nice. So it's like, hey, there's a little... Little, little Who thing in there going on. There you go.
0: Oh, well, cool. now I have to
3: Google that. I apologize. Yeah, you gotta, boom, I got you a little Who thing going on right there. Uh, <laughs> no, we were just having a little conversation pre-show. Sean Pertwee has
2: no stuff. connection to Doctor Who, so, you know.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. But, like, he's never been in Doctor Who at all, but he's awesome, and he looks just like it's fucking dead. It's like
2: uh, he was he did have a bit part in uh the five ish doctors, which was a uh kinda
0: thing made for the fiftieth anniversary. And um, he was uh recently in something I've been watching lately, uh Luther, the uh the British crime series with uh what's his name? Uh Idis Elba or whatever. Idris Elba, yeah, yeah. yeah, Idris Elba. Um, oh, he was,
2: Right. Sorry, I, I just saw yeah, he was in the Cold War so yeah, I recognized him as soon as I saw his so yes yeah.
0: He's a, he's an excellent actor. I I really like him. He's he honestly I think he's just as good as his dad.
2: Yeah, there have been some photos of him uh, dressed up like his dad, just as mm-hmm. a uh, kind of uh, thing, and people are saying like, oh, if there was ever going to be a uh, a revisit, like a, a third Doctor cameo in the new series, Sean Pertwee dressed
0: like that would. Like be... that that would be interesting to see. I, I'd like to see that. and I, I don't know if it would work, but that would be something I'd like to see, just because I'm a Pertwee fan. But, uh, yeah. as, as am I, as am I. All right, uh, so we're done with that business, and we can, I think, get right into our movies. I think we're going to start with Motel Hell from 1980.
4: Again, spend a night away from home. After you spend a night with Ida and Vincent. Ida will show you the way. You want us to uh, register?
5: No, that won't be necessary.
4: nightmare could never prepare you for what happens to the guest. vincent you think in the years to come people will appreciate us for what we're doing here i have a surprise for you oh goody i
5: love surprises
4: one after another they come check in and pray for the day they can check Hard as you try, you'll never forget their secret garden. If you have the nerve, come for a night and stay for a nightmare. Motel Hell. No one will be admitted after the guests check in.
0: Directed by Kevin Connor, Written by Robert Jaffe, Stephen Charles Jaffe, Tim... Fuck you, your name is bullshit. Tim Tuccarello and Frank Cotolo. Starring Rory Calhoun, Paul Link... Nancy Parsons, Nina Axelrod, uh, Wolfman Jack, Axelrod, Axelrod. Wolfman, Wolfman Jack, Jack in a <laughs> dual
2: role at that.
0: This is a semi-slasher. Uh, to be quite honest, I was thinking uh, when when I first thought of these movies, I was thinking of *Eaten Alive*, and I just kind of mistaken it for *Motel Hell*. But *Motel Hell* still sort of falls into the slasher to a, a certain extent. It's kind of a parody of slasher films. Uh, it involves Farmer Vincent uh, and his sister who run a motel called motel Hello, although the O is sparking out every once in a while so it's motel hell yeah so they so they take in tenants and at the same time farmer Vincent is very busy where he goes out at night setting up traps on the local uh, highway to uh, ensnare passersby. And use them for his fritters and his smoked meats. He's very famous when within a hundred-mile radius. Apparently, his his smoked meats are very, very popular. He keeps his
3: course, his quality high and his cost low.
0: Exactly, no um, preservatives. So, $2, at one, $2.95
3: a pound,
0: my friend. Exactly, yeah. That's it's, it's a good fucking deal. So one of his uh, victims, a uh, motorcyclist and his, his woman, his old lady, mm. they, cra- they, they get caught in one of his traps. He takes the girl. He essentially uh, takes pity on her and brings her into the fold and tries to heal her and perhaps bring her <sighs> into the uh, sort of family business. Although he keeps her kind of ignorant of what he's doing for quite a while, the, his brother Bruce Smith, the sheriff of the town, he's kind of a ignorant bumpkin. He doesn't really realize what his fucking brother's been doing for all these years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he falls for the he falls for the uh, for the girl, and so there's sort of this love triangle going on. The sister, she is a little bit jealous. She doesn't want this new person brought into the fold, so she's trying to kill her all the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's pretty much where the film, what the film's about. It's basically about the uh, internal struggles of this family. Mm-hmm. And just go, go right to you, uh, Daniel. What, what do you think about the film initially?
2: Well, first of all, let me say that uh, Motel Hello is the uh, worst sign, the worst name for anything <laughs> since uh, Revenge of the Nerds 2 the uh, hotel was called the Hotel Coral Essex Solely <laughs> so that certain lines could go out and it's called Hotel Oral Sex um, the, the idea of calling it Motel Hello just so that the O can go out, like Motel Hello if you ever run into a place called Motel Hello, just walk away, like that's just a terrible <laughs> name Regardless of whether there's actually murder going on, I found this film actually kind of fascinating uh, overall. The slasher element's probably the least ele- the, the least interesting part of this. Mm-hmm. I Found myself as while I was watching it, increasingly kind of thinking that the '80sness of it kind of uh, got in the way of the overall story. That the the aesthetics of 1981 are uh, are kind of getting in its way. I kind of really would like to see a remake of this, kind of made it's verite style. Um, focusing specifically on the kind of like mechanics of how the food processing etc is done uh, in, in this kind of almost nonchalant kind of first 30 minutes of district nine sort of way maybe without the the documentary aspect I can imagine a much better film being made from this basic idea mm-hmm that said, I think it is a really interesting film. I think it is uh the sequences particularly where uh uh the farmer and his sister are are kind of going through their work of of farming these people and uh killing them and such are definitely the most interesting things in the film, um, in terms of its its darkness. Uh the satire is there. Um it's definitely that kind of dark boarded comedy in certain sequences. There's a lot of kind of interesting character work going on, which I might talk about here shortly. But uh, overall, I think it's a really interesting film, but I think that ultimately the the kind of constraints of the genre and the constraints of the age kind of get in this way for a modern viewer for me. I I kind of found myself wishing that it was not quite as much a commercial to 1981 film as it is. I wish that it kind of had been free to overstep its bounds
3: a little bit more. Not edgy enough?
2: Um, it's not even that it's not edgy. I wouldn't even make that claim. it's just it does seem to exist within this genre. It has to fulfill certain things. Um, to me, the whole like through line of the plot is almost completely superfluous to everything that's interesting in the film, uh, where the the girl with the biker boyfriend kind of falls in love with the dude and etc et like there's some interesting stuff there, but it's much less interesting than the world and the situation. So what I found is, like, I want this kind of basic situation to be exploited in a better film, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, Paul, what do you think of it?
3: Well, I like it. Um, I've always liked this film. I just thought it was really interesting. You know, someone was like, okay, I want a film that takes Green Acres, uh, Psycho, like a Florence Nightingale st- slash Stockholm Syndrome, and smacks it up with some Texas Chainsaw. That's what that film is. There you go perfect with some psychedelic shit going on in it too because you know from you know, falling in love with your with your your the people helping you then turns out they're also your kidnappers so that's pretty interesting i think the characters play their characters pretty well i mean the people play the characters pretty well they all have their own little nuances and stuff that i i find very amusing all right ada's pissed because there's another person in here even though she at the same time every time she gets sloshed she just wants to let let it all out with oh we cook, we cook people no problem I was going to, you know, but uh, half the time I don't think she's jealous for sexual reasons because she's a female. Because half the time I think, like, you notice she's uh, looking at naked women in in a porn magazine. And I don't know if that's supposed to be her being sexual or her looking at them as, like, a meat farmer's magazine. I'm not
0: really sure. Well,. the Nancy Parsons character, Ida Smith, the sister of Vince's, Vincent Smith, I think it's, it's, it's much more just she does not view people as anything but animals. Like the but, victims, yeah, they they food. Take in, yeah. they're just livestock to her. Like she does not care. The fact that Vincent uh, takes a liking to Terry kind of myths her. She, like she's kind of confused by it, and she doesn't quite accept it. And she's looking for any excuse she can to get rid of her at the nearest opportunity. I, I like a lot of stuff in this film. I like that it is a very much a black comedy. It originally was not supposed to be that way. Uh, the, the original screenplay was supposed to be very dark and disturbing. Like Apparently there's supposed to be bestiality in this film. But they just changed it around quite a bit. Uh, I mean, Toby Hooper was originally supposed to be the director of this film, uh, but when Universal Studios kind of backed out of this, he backed out at the same time. So it, it went much more of the sort of black comedy route, and I think it works really well. I think there's a really good balance here between the sort of black comedy and outright horror. I think it works pretty good. There's a good characterization here. For Farmer Vincent and his sister Ida, where they're the sort of southern red state kind of Republican almost character, I guess like right-wing Christian kind of character, where they think they're very much morally right. I think they feel like they're very much above reproach. So <laughs> there, there's some like comical experiences coming out of that, like the part where they have the swinger couple come into the house Oh, that's moment. hilarious. Yeah, where, where they, they basically, you know... The swinger couple comes in, and they're looking for some sort of Vincent's Motel that is, like, totally different than the one they showed up at. And, uh, you know, some sort of S&M motel of some sort. Is this the place? You know, like, here we signed the brochure and shit, and, oh, yeah, this is, yeah, all right, yeah. And they, they just think that these two hill hillbillies are really into kinky shit. <laughs> until it's too fucking late, and they come in, they come in wearing their fucking work clothes, basically, and they're they have rugs. Well,
3: they're, they're fine until they get the gas out, and they re- smell it's not what not funny gas like they thought. They thought, yeah, it's not uh-huh. nitrous oxide. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, I thought I thought it was really good. I mean, yeah, that
3: that was a really funny part. I was laughing a lot at that part. Yeah, I, I, was, I
0: was I was laughing quite a bit at that. Like the the, the victims that they uh, take, like you know, I guess we just can kind of spoil it, like. They, they they take their victims. They don't kill them outright. They uh, they take them and they plant them in their in their little secret garden. And they fatten them up so they can you know make them just good for uh, making meat out of them. Yep. They uh, cut they, their
3: vocal cords so they can't yell out. And then they feed them this gruel through pipes and they hypnotize them before mm-hmm. they plug them and pull them. I mean, so there's a there,
0: yeah, there, there's a lot of like really interesting, unique, bizarre shit as far as that goes. Like.
3: Any other yeah, but, movie,
0: they'd just be outright killing them and stuffing them in the fucking meat grinder and making sausage out of them. But here, they, they go the little bit of the extra mile. There,
2: there's oh. some really arresting imagery, in particular, like when they're feeding them and they've got the like little feeding tubes attached mm-hmm. to them, and the the fact that like whenever they're in the garden, there's like a head like bobbing around and you hear like a little bit of the, the like the groaning, and it it sells the world in a way and it sells the characterization in a way that it is uh, not required.
3: The film. Yeah. In the distance when you see the farm from the distance or the the garden you hear that kind of overtoned like croaking hog noise that's very ominous as well then the speakers they keep playing that's weird. I I did wonder, I mean, this
2: is kind of one of those things where it's such like it's done so well in this film that it it should be done better. And and I and and that's kind of where I land on it is, you know, a, a film that focused a little bit more directly. I mean, you kind of talked about the political angle, Lee, but, you know, you can imagine, like, a, a kind of food conglomerate. We we are in a world now where, you know, this kind of focus on, like, oh, it's organically sourced, it's local, it's, you know, etc. et cetera, et cetera. And the idea of, like, feeding, you know, rich hipsters, poor people, essentially, or, or undocumented immigrants and that sort of thing. You know, like, it's it's essentially, it's a farm, so you've got, like, undocumented workers working in the field, and then when they can't work any longer, they get turned into foodstuff, you know? Like, yeah. essentially take the slasher movie out of, it, out of it completely and just kind of do a film that's about this, this kind of general idea um, and about the horror of, you know, the fact that in the real world of 2015, you know, we have... Of, uh, poor people breaking their backs to get tomatoes on our on our cheeseburgers and that sort of thing. And uh, the idea of uh, building that metaphor into a, a full feature film, I think, is yeah, – that that's kind of what I came away from this film with. I mean, I did like the kind of broad satire of it, but I like the idea even more. I, I think this is like itching for a remake. Or rather a conceptual remake, but like kind of almost reforming the film completely.
3: I wonder if Farmer Vincent sat down and read *The Jungle*, but read it the wrong way.
2: <laughs> I think he read um, the Jonathan Swift *Modest Proposal*. I think he read *A Modest Proposal* and thought, like, oh no, no, yeah, no, he like he didn't get the satire. It was a, it was a thing. This is a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be Irish, we're good, you know.
0: There is a slight religious element into this, like the two main characters, Vincent and the sister Ida, are both kind of semi-fundamentalists to a degree, like they're the kind of people who always have like the uh, southern preachers on TV in the background always talking, right? So, well, the,
2: the, the televangelist, uh, Wolfman Jack, both as the televangelist and as the radio host, the real Wolfman Jack, I thought was was really fascinating. So
0: fucking good, because that the could have been it, his that could have been his career if he hadn't gotten in the rock and roll. Right,
2: <laughs> the fact that it, that it's kind of always playing, the fact that it's you know it's it's often counterpointed directly with the kind of brutality of what they're actually doing. I thought was really interesting. I, I this is a film I, I will almost certainly revisit at some point. Um, I thought it was a kind of a fascinating kind of. Very interesting thing, but again, just kind of like the the, the overall structure of it. The the more it hews to that like slasher or horror film structure, the less interested I get. Like the the car chase, for instance, uh, towards the middle of the film. Yeah. Personally, if if you asked me to remake that, I would uh, totally go straight up Fargo with that. You know, the the chasing in the middle of Fargo, not to give away Fargo. Um, I that, that's <laughs> kind of where I would go
3: with that. You know. But it starts with the, the greatest cutout cows I've ever seen.
2: Yeah. <laughs> with with um almost seductive eyes. Very seductive.
0: Yeah, I really liked uh, Wolfman Jack's cameo in this. When I first saw him in this, I was like, fuck yeah. Because uh, I really like Wolfman Jack's Yeah, baby. Yeah. Yeah. He plays his preacher as like a really lazy preacher who doesn't believe the f- anything he's fucking saying. When you see him on the TV he's just sort of laying back like uh, give money baby to uh, <laughs> this and that and all these things and then he he, he runs into uh, Farmer Vincent's younger brother who's the sheriff in the town or whatever and he has a, like a curly magazine It's like what you got that what you got there Sif and it's like oh I got this off some kids and <laughs> he starts looking oh, at God. it
3: I better take and uh, dispose of this
0: yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I love Wolfman Jack in this um yeah, there, there's this sort of element where, again, where it goes to that sort of small town uh, right wing Christian mentality where "do as I say, not as I do." Farmer Vincent and Ida they judge everyone who comes into their basically little trap that they set. Uh, all these people, like even the uh, the the sort of swingers that show up at their motel, they're not bad people. They're not really. they they're not hurting anybody. Even like the the rock band that they accost. Uh, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, John Farmer Rassenberger is yeah. the drummer in that band. They're not hurting anybody. They're not bad people necessarily. And Farmer Vincent and his sister, they kind of judge them as being bad people. And they're different.
3: They must be bad.
0: It makes them. It makes them cattle for them. Well, but really, Farmer Vincent
2: the traps are not, like, specific. I mean, all the people that we see them capture are people who are, quote-unquote, bad by their eyes, but there's nothing, like, guaranteeing that. There, There's yeah. no, like, like, it could be some good Christian family coming along. And um, I do wish that the... You know, the film pointed a little bit more in a particular direction on that. I, I do think that, like, we saw them. You know, oh well, this is a good Christian family. We'll let them go, or you know, something like that. I. I what do you think about the fact that he decided to let the blonde girl live? Like, do you think he was uh, attracted to her from the beginning? Well, yeah, they, they basically
3: oh, yeah. he uh, he got her, and then he just said, like, he told I or that he saw something in her, some purity and stuff, and he was going to save her and bring her up and, and almost have her like as a, a beautiful, doll daughter, if you know what I mean. And and mm-hmm. she wanted the uh, Vincent meat stick in the end, and she didn't like that.
0: Yeah, because she's kind of... Let um, I me mean, well, just
2: say, no one in this film has an IQ over 80. Like,
0: Let's, no, just, let's just
3: leave it at that.
0: She's not the cool. smartest character because, I mean... He takes her right out of a road accident, and she's immediately like, where's where's my uh, boyfriend? Oh, he's dead. No
3: he's dead. Okay. Don't worry about
0: it. Well, I'm going I'm to accept that and stay with you guys and recover. Yeah, that's and
3: the he- funny thing is they take her to the graveyard. The cop goes, unfortunately, that's how we do things out here. If there's no information, they're allowed to bury him. And she's like, I'll just chill out, I guess. yeah. Really? You have nowhere else to go? Although,
0: like, she kind of... She finally falls for Farmer Vincent at the point where Ida tries to kill her when, hey, have you ever been tubing before? Let's go tubing! And (laughs) they jump out to the fucking... that little crater lake thing they got going on there, and she tries to kill her, tries to drown her there, or whatever, and...
3: And Farmer uh, Vincent takes her out of the water and saves her again. And, you know,
0: that's not totally unbelievable. I mean... Because for the most part, Rory Calhoun plays his character very straight, very folksy, very likable. We see him doing bad things, but she's never seen him doing bad things, so you don't really get the idea that he's off for the most part, because he seems pretty normal. It's his sister, Ida, who seems like a fucking crazy uh, weirdo right from the start, and of course she is, but it's like, kind of one of those things like, okay, I'm really, I really like you, and oh, you have a crazy sister, or a crazy aunt or uncle, okay, I can... Kind of accept that as long as you know, as I long think, as I think, I
2: think lots of people have to deal with crazy family members of
3: their, uh, yeah. a, uh most of my mind. family members are batshit nuts anyway, so I'm fine with that.
0: <laughs> there you go.
3: <laughs> I, I did get a, a certain level
2: of like simultaneously a like a sexual uh threat between Ida and the the blonde and a, a kind of sexual desire. I think that there is this, in that performance, uh, particularly in the tubing scene, I definitely, I definitely kind of got something in that performance that made me think that the character was both threatened by the, oh, there's this young pretty blonde running around and uh, looking very nice in a wet t-shirt. Mm-hmm. And uh, but also simultaneously uh, desiring uh, of that, so um, you know there is that kind of sublimated desire, which you I mean not as overtly in in this kind of very broad comedic horror kind of version, but you do see that a lot in people who are kind of raised in this kind of very conservative fundamentalist worldview. Um, I hate of, you, and
3: that's why I want you.
2: Uh, well, just of the, of that, like, um, you know, I'm someone right. who is very comfortable in, in communicating clearly about sexual desire. And uh, that's because uh, while I was raised in the in the fundamentalist South, I have read and, like, talked to people and understand the world around me. But people who have not made that effort in many cases um, have these desires, they don't understand them, and then they lash out against the source of that.
3: And well, we've I, always you know, heard about the Catholic schoolgirls. We've always heard about them. <laughs> yeah. Repressed sexual attention.
0: There's some things I really like about this. Like, uh, I really like that picnic scene where they're first like all together. Like, uh, oh yeah, that Vincent. was
3: picturesque.
0: Yeah, Vincent and Ida and and Terry are all there having a picnic, and also uh, the brother there is also there. And and it, it, it pl- almost plays like a fucking commercial. It plays like an early like 80s commercial for like smoked meats because just the lines <laughs> they say. Because like, why have I never heard of you before? Oh well farmer Vince's fucking meat is only a hundred mile radius and you know, we keep the quality up and the price reasonable and, and it's like holy shit, am I watching a commercial for Kentucky Fried Chicken or something like that from the sixties? Because that's what it felt like.
3: The the Colonel's eighty three herbs and spices, you know.
0: Yeah,
2: like, yep, no, 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 I get
0: it,
3: I get it. You know, yeah. yeah. She she wanted me to shush that dog. I shushed it up, alright. I smoked that thing, and Granny ate it for supper. <laughs> and you could see that you could see the that, that their the family's mentality of meat is meat and man has to eat is not exactly completely set in on the on the new girl yet. She had a kind of like uh what the hell kind of a vibe going on the yeah. whole time. That was right. That was nice. It reminded
2: me in some ways of a hamburger the movie,
3: honestly, in terms of (laughs) this
2: kind of broad satire of something that I could see a much more incisive satire being made of, Um, and it reminded me there was an episode of King of the Hill, ironically, (laughs) uh, where Luann kind of falls in love with this meat magnate. And it turns out he has this dark secret where, um, in that series, it turns out he has a fetish for dressing up like a pig and wanting to, uh, <laughs> to, to fuck the girl in the uh, in the pork advertisements. But you know that's a, that's another thing. Um, you know there were there were uh, both of these films kind of reminded me of other stuff that was very clearly influenced by them.
0: Um, if that makes yeah. any sense. The two Playboy models that are in this film, uh, they don't get nude which is like a rarity for Playboy models when they first get a movie role. <laughs> it, was, it was the two girls in the, uh, in the car there in the that car, get stopped yep. by the fake cows oh, or whatever.
3: We were talking before before we started this about linkages between the previous podcasts and then this podcast, and there's a severe linkage that I wanted to bring up and I brought up in the last one, the epically fake beard and dreadlocks on the guy <laughs> in, from, the, from the van. And yeah. I'm gonna link. I'm gonna link that to the epic fake mustache and the cop from Sleepaway Camp.
0: Yeah, the lead. They're, they're singer,
3: epically bad.
0: The lead singer of Ivan and the Terribles is. He's it's got the so worst. So Fake dreadlocked beard. That yeah, it was just terrible. It, it really it's was. so bad.
3: It's almost a thing of beauty.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: I can't believe we've gotten this far and not mentioned
2: the uh, epic uh, chainsaw duel. That yeah. was the
3: worst part of the film for me.
0: <laughs> but yeah. Uh, the interesting thing is, like, you get the Chainsaw Duel, and Toby Hooper was originally sort of cited to do this one, and he dropped out before it started. And then you look at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 from 1986. Um, I'm kind of thinking he ripped a lot from this film. Uh, yeah. Chainsaw Duel, right there, you got Dennis Hopper of a fucking exactly. duel chainsaws fighting Leatherface. You have the smoked meats. Angle where the cook in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is selling his world famous chili. like meat chili to people, yep. and you know, so there's that element as well. The, the Chainsaw Duel's really good. Uh, it, it takes it back to its sort of slasher roots as well. Like mm-hmm. it, it, sort of brings that movie back into focus. On I that think sort of the, uh, the,
3: the pig head, the, the pig head, really set it into that disturbing function too, and it, it, right. it added another layer of how the hell can you see anyway through a fucking pig head. Well, anyway, I think I think it's
0: implied he's looking through the mouth of it, and even really? then you can even then you can tell he's having trouble because he keeps sort of lifting his head up a little bit and kind of like going at him, and it's like. Rawr! Rawr! Although he he gets to like uh, chainsaw the deputy or the uh, sheriff, I mean like several times before. Yeah.
3: <laughs> uh, and there, there was a time where a little bit uh, the, that uh, Vincent almost shot the sheriff.
1: Ah shot cherry. Yeah. With a shotgun,
3: uh because he wanted to get with his girl and was telling that Vincent basically is no good and the his dick won't get hard and stuff. And it's
1: it's a lot of
3: the of, bros. Yeah, a little that little, little nice little family turmoil stuff going on there, you know, like that love triangle you said. But yeah, it does con- it does work out to a pretty cool fight scene with the chainsaws and the, the meat processing stuff going on. I do uh regret that they have a very uh, strange idea of how long meat actually takes to smoke because they <laughs> they got one of the ones done before they had the other ones three to go up. I'm like, that takes days. What are you doing? You know, like, oh, no, yeah. this one's done. And and as soon as she gets it, so Ida just wants to eat. She's hungry.
0: It's, it's not perfect, but I think it comes together very well. I think it balances sort of the... The, the sort of black comedy with the horror pretty well. It's a little derivative of like uh, Eatin' Alive and Texas Chainsaw Massacre to a certain degree. Yeah. But I think it works on its own pretty well. Some of these actors went on to do a lot of stuff. Ida Smith, I recognized her right away from the fucking Porky's films. She's yeah. the... Uh, The gym coach or whatever from all the films.
3: The the snake uh, in the toilet.
0: Rory Calhoun is Vincent Smith. Uh, He was a longtime actor and lots of stuff. Like, he started in the late 40s after he met Alan Ladd and got some jobs in Hollywood. At this point, he was probably best known for Night of the Lepus and Hell Comes to Frogtown. He was doing, like, a lot of genre stuff. I like that, uh, in the end, Farmer Vincent admits that he's a hypocrite because, at the end there, he's like, I use preservatives in <laughs> all my meats.
3: My meat. Yeah. I use
0: preservatives. So, so he is sort of the uh, epitome of the sort of. Uh, it's Monsanto. Yeah, <laughs> and and essentially he's committing the crime that he finds the worst because yeah, because he 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 makes a big point about how all of our stuff is natural, no preservatives, all fresh, and all that shit. And my whole
3: life has been a lie.
0: Yeah. I love that.
3: Never mind, I cut up people. Damn
0: preservatives. I, th- I think I think in the end it's a pretty fairly smart satire, honestly. And will uh, it,
3: uh, it reminds me of like you know, films of the same kind of horror genre that are fun to watch, like Nine Seven Six Evil, like things like that. Things that like a lot of people could watch and have a chuckle, and then you know have a entertainment with the horror too. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: Daniel, what are your final thoughts on this one?
2: I would agree with you, um, by and large. Again, very enjoyable. I, I had no problem seeing through the the whole thing, enjoying it. I mean, I wouldn't even consider this a slasher film. I mean, this is, you know, it, yeah. at times even towards the end, it becomes even more of a zombie film. Yeah. Uh, yep. Some really creepy, arresting imagery, imagery, and uh, some nice character work, and uh, overall pretty enjoyable. I would love to see a, a kind of. Modern filmmaker do a uh, little more pointed version of this, probably not call it motel hell because I don't think that the motel angle really gives you any you know particular resonance I, I think you could you could get rid of some of the cruft and kind of like focus on the essentials of this and make a really, really effective film, uh, which I think this is enjoyable and, and effective, but I think you could make a masterpiece out of this basic idea um, and i'd love to see it so.
0: Yeah, the Motel doesn't even really play into it for the most part. I mean they I mean it's really
2: there just to kind of be the psycho ripoff. I mean
0: Yeah, I mean uh the the original movie I was thinking of before we did this one was Eaten Alive, and that one takes the Motel kind of idea much more seriously and actually integrates it into the plot. Paul, what are your final thoughts on this one?
3: I think it's a fun film. I do like the zombie people kind of ending where they're more like just ghouls, they're not dead, but they're not zombies or but they're like this there's insane out for revenge, and they basically either smash people's skulls and bite the crap out of them. I like the ending on that one. Overall, this film has aspects for almost everybody to enjoy, though. There's a lot of dynamic to to this simple film, and it's pretty damn fun to watch. I like it. I I like it pretty good. It's one of the ones that... uh, I'll go back to now and again and watch over and over again. You know, it's been a while since I've actually played it, so I'm going by memory. Like I, I never seem to ever watch any of your films when you tell me to, unfortunately. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, it's it's a good film. I really enjoy it, and I'm glad you brought up the the zombie the kind of zombie ending it has too, because that's a definitely big player on that one. But then they just disappear. You never know. You ever they just disappear.
0: Yeah. You never but see them. Like,
3: you know, like you should be like Motel Hell Two the day after zombie apocalypse. <laughs> dot com or whatever you know so it's really if you then. if
2: if you look at this through a Marxist angle it's really the uh, the oppressed working class uh, really disappears and we are really focusing on the uh, the work of the proletariat that's really uh, the way this, uh, <laughs> this works there it is I like it sorry Thanks. doing doing the Marxist angle on this on your on your podcast let's see if we can get some hate mail going on you know
0: yeah
3: awesome. Greg won't understand
0: uh I'll just throw in this little piece here before we get to the next one um. I say in in 2002, MGM released *Motel Hell* as uh, part of its Midnight Movies series. Uh, they did it with a double feature with *Deranged*. So, yeah, I uh, have it. Yeah, so you can probably still find that on eBay and Amazon if you look really hard. Yeah. But it was also released by Scream Factory in 2014, and that's probably the one you want to look for, because Scream Factory doesn't fuck around when they do the releases. So if, if you're interested in seeing this one, go for the Scream Factory if you can. If you can't find it, uh, get the uh, MGM release. The thing about the MGM release is you're probably going to pay up the ass for it, because usually those kind of films are out of print at this point. So everyone at eBay just wants to, like, rob you blind. <laughs> if
3: you're if you're okay with the regular plain Jane movie cuz it's not uncut or anything it's the same movie on every format. Mm-hmm. Uh Deranged is a beautiful film that you should watch if you love horror and especially like the Ed Gein stories and the backstory the guy that spawned all the great horror movies basically. So definitely watch the Deranged because Yay. it's like even though it they're not playing off the Ed Gein thing calling him Ed Gein and stuff like that he it is one of the most true to form Ed Gein films that isn't supposed to be a documentary.
0: Yeah, it's very close to the original story of like the actual guy who murdered and ate people and made furniture out of their bodies and <laughs> stuff like that, you know.
3: You'll have a good time watching it.
0: Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to jump right into Just Before Dawn from 1981. Run for your life. The nightmare has begun.
5: It will find you in the hour when dream and reality merge. The last desperate moment of darkness. who is it? Just before dawn. They were warned. At least tell me where you're going. So that when you don't come back, I'll know how to fill out the report. But they did not understand the warning. Daniel, what you see. They came to the mountain for adventure and escape. What they found was a trial which only the strongest could survive. How could they know that beneath the awesome beauty of nature lay violence, danger and death?
0: I've seen all the blood.
5: How could they know? The heat of their bodies was the magnet that would draw the terror to them.
1: No, no, no.
5: no, no. no more devils. No more. There's no more nothing out there. Just skyrockers. You saw them kids? I
1: see,
5: see them. Good mind to just let them have their due. Just before dawn comes horror. Just before dawn comes death. Rated R.
0: Directed by Jeff Lieberman. You might know him from Squirm and Blue Sunshine. Those are probably his most notable films.
2: He directed Squirm. That's
0: amazing. He yeah, he did. Squirm. I only
2: know that from the mst 3 k version, but it's yeah. one of my favorite
3: mst 3 ks so, you know. yeah, I, lo- I really do enjoy Blue Sunshine. Elvira has a movie macabre of that with uh, Doomsday Machine or something and, and Blue Sunshine.
0: Right on. Uh, written by Mark Arruitz. Uh Jesus Christ, get a new name, dude, because I can't do <laughs> ah! and, and Jeff Lieberman also helped pin this. It was originally taken a, from a story by Jonas Middleton, uh, it was changed quite significantly when Jeff Lieberman actually got into it. Um, <laughs> it's starring George Kennedy, famous star of uh, of the big screen. Uh, you might know him from uh, Cool Hand Luke. He he was in Cool Hand Luke, but at this point he was doing a lot of genre stuff. So he was in like Creep Show 2 and Death Ship and stuff like Air, that. Airplane, Airplane. And then of yeah, course I know him from Airplane. I apologize. Yeah, so just yeah. don't
3: watch anything but Airplane.
0: You'll be good. And then, of course, he went on to do the uh, Naked Gun films. Mike Kellen is Ty, and uh, Mike Kellen, of course, big connection to the last episode. This is Mel from Sleepaway Mel. Camp. This was before Sleepaway Camp. Uh forgot to mention Sleepaway Camp was his final role before he died of cancer before in 1983. Died, yep. yeah. So he's back here on this one. Uh, Chris Lemon, of course, uh, famous son of famous Lemon. <laughs> if you don't know who the fuck that is, then uh, I feel sorry for you.
3: I have no uh, idea who you're talking about. Please <laughs> let
2: us know. Is that, is that Walter Matthau's son? Is that what we're saying?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Greg Henry, uh, Deborah Benson, Ralph Seymour, Katie Powell, uh, John Hunsecker, Charles Bartlett, and Jamie Rose as Megan, who is ultra hot, and we'll get. He's more. got a boner. Exactly. So this this film is a slasher in the woods film. Uh, It involves these uh, young friends in a camper going to this sort of of out-of-the-way place in Oregon. It's a real-life place, Silver Lake National Park, I believe it is. They go out there because the one lead guy
2: who was in Payback...
0: And, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he's been he's been a lot. I was of like
2: stuff. that guy. Yeah, I knew him for payback because he was uh, he paid uh, Lucy Liu to beat him up in the,
0: uh, Yeah, he's he's the guy with the really bad hairpiece now because who know, would not pay Lucy Liu to beat her, beat them up? I would pay her to beat me up all the time every day. <laughs> but yeah, he. Here he still had his real hair. He has inherited a piece of land up here in Oregon, up in the park region. What what better way to inspect the land but to bring his friends up for an excuse to have a vacation up in the woods? So that's what they're doing. They go up there. Uh, they run into George Kennedy as a forest ranger. He warns them, don't fucking go there because he's sort of harbinger of doom that you see in these sort of movies before this formula was established. You, um, using
2: the classic line... That mountain can't read.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that mountain can't read, city boy, basically. So they go up there. Uh, what they do not know is that they're being stalked by someone out there killing people. Like It's established in the opening that there's a killer, and so they are unaware. You know, They're having a lot of good time. I'm in in trying in the... to
3: remember, there was a horrible crash at the beginning with Mel and the other man. And uh, is, Are they in the church? Did they go into yes. the church? You end yeah, up in, in, the, in the communal center, church, whatever you want to call it. Uh, unfortunately, the one man meets one of the, 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 or the, at the time, the big old redneck hillbilly that's, you know, superhuman. And he puts his thing through his thing. Yeah. And nice. And the, and the one, like, really effective gore effect
2: in the film, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. it's, like,
3: straight through thing to groin to out the back. And I'm, like, at first I was, like, I think he went through the way, the wrong way, and he turns around, and I'm like, he stabbed him in the gut. Why would it be sticking out his ass? And I that I had to actually rewind the film because I watched it on VHS, and I played it again. I'm like, oh god, you know, right through the right through the man junk. Oh, I, I've nice. heard the
2: expression tear a man a new asshole, but this is the uh, this is the it first time it. I've seen it actually realized. <laughs> oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a very effective <laughs> opening. It really is. You have Mike Kell in his tie and his in his uh, nephew Vachel. Uh, I don't have him on my uh, cast list here, but he he is in there. Um, They basically just got done a hunting trip, and they're just sort of hanging out in this old abandoned church. By the way, that church was built for the movie. It was not a found thing. It was just built right in the woods and made to look aged, and it looks really effective. It looks really fucking good, actually. It looks
2: looks very much like an old dilapidated church. I mean... If you didn't tell me, I, I looked on Wikipedia, so I kind of. I didn't know
3: that, so that's new for me.
2: Yeah, um, if I hadn't known that was fake, built for the film, I would have believed it was a found location. Like it. I lived. just the,
3: I just found the internet like three years ago, so this is all new to me. <laughs> and
2: this is it, all it really needs are doves and then it can be a John Woo location, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this is the first like really effective setup in a lot of effective setups in this film I found. Uh Mike Kellan's character is basically pretending to preach at the pulpit and he looks up to the hole in the roof and he sees the killer looking down at him and it's just incredibly fucking creepy. He he runs from the church, like he's out of the church and then he sees the killer coming out Wearing the clothes of the guy he of his nephew that he just killed, incredibly fucking creepy. Just sets the sort of tone for the movie right away. Jeff Lieberman on the commentary of the film immediately makes note of the fact that the uh, truck gets pushed at fucking Ty and hits a tree and blows up and that only happens in fucking movies the the the, the, the truck would not have blown up in, in real life if it had hit the fucking so tree So it's certainly
2: not looking as fake looking as it did
0: when it when yeah. it blew up it was I just uh,
3: I just smashed a truck recently and I can assure you they don't blow up when you hit them
0: Yeah <laughs> there you go but yeah this this movie just <laughs> Essentially, you get Except to know with applied
3: chemistry. We'll just yeah. <laughs> applied chemistry and some ignition. We
0: like it. So you get to know these uh, young characters. They're all actually quite likable. You just get to see the inter- interpersonal relationships between them because you got like a sort of couple, like the Jamie Rose with her boyfriend. She's the sort of sexy, sexually uh, invigorated woman. Uh, so she's with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend has her sort of nerdy photo photographer brother with him. Then you have the main couple: uh, Greg Henry is Warren. He's sort of the macho, can do anything kind of woodsman guy who's like, yeah, we're gonna. He's the leader of the pack. He's gonna show them how all what to do in the woods. And then you have Deborah Benson, I believe, is uh, Constance. Is that the right one? Uh, who is the girlfriend? Right. Yeah, who is the one who? Initially, she feels sort of inadequate because she's like she's really in love with her boyfriend, and her boyfriend's like, yeah, let's go in the woods and do this stuff. And she's like, I don't know, because I don't really feel like I can do this stuff. And she kind of feels just sort of left behind because there's the an initial, fil- the initial scene in the film where everyone gets kind of scared. Like, they get separated, and they're at the campfire, and they're waiting for uh, the two guys to come back. Someone's in the woods scaring them, and Jamie Rose's character immediately grabs the knife and is like, come on, where do, who the fuck are you? Uh, come over the woods, show yourself. And she kind of takes it at like, why didn't I do that? Why am I not as capable as she is? And I think that plays later into the film. Like, there's a good real character arc for uh, Constance that uh, I think we'll talk about later in the film. The film, I think it has a really creepy, effective atmosphere. And uh, I'll immediately go to you, Paul. What are your initial thoughts on this film?
3: I think it's a good film. I like the way it's shot. The the version that I have is a little darker than the version that I saw that is uh, widely available now. So uh, that would probably up my enjoyment of the film a little bit more because it's pretty dark, the one I have
0: Mm -hmm. at times.
3: Um, I like the actors. You know, there's a lot of horror movies I've watched and I was like, you know what, if they would have just got warned one more time, this film would have probably been okay. But no, because they get filmed warned twice and they still go the fuck up there. (laughs) You know, it's yeah. like you know, once, eh, you know, you can ignore it twice. You're just stupid. But uh, it's the, you know, kind of the the macho ego of uh, of of Warren that just leads them on as the troop. You know, mm-hmm. um, pretty interesting deer hit scene where basically you just hear you see a mounted deer skull or head just smack against the front of the thing and they can't find it i thought they'd play on that a little bit more but they really didn't they just got him out of the vehicle for a little bit basically tell mel to shove it up his butt and take off there is a section where mel is like super freaked out because he's in the woods with his maniac still and he thought they were going to help him he sees the, the the rv's driving away and you get to see the killer I'm not going to say gracefully by any means jump on the back of the uh, of the the RV and basically bottom the fucking thing out Uh, but uh and, and that is the greatest part to me in the film. I love that. It happened because you get to see Mel just like, <laughs> fuck you guys. I love that
0: part. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll, we'll just call him Mel because we know him as Mel. And we, we love just call him Sim- Mel. Sim-
3: We're going to call him <laughs> Mel. <I> love him. <laughs> we love
0: him from Sim-Bowen Camp, so he's Mel. But yeah. yeah
3: uh, <laughs> Look, I'm sorry. He's Mel. He's a douchebag in every movie he's ever played in. I love yeah. it. Uh, but like, I love the fact that no matter what, he made sure he kept his bourbon with him.
0: Yeah, he kept his bottle close to him. I mean, yeah, that, no that that man was a serious drinker. But yeah.
2: uh, he he nursed on that he nursed on that pint for a while though. I mean, he, he did. Was, yeah. He I mean, I'm like, no. If if I had seen my friend get like murdered through the cock, mm-hmm. I would. That I I'd, I'd be down. <laughs> they would be done. Like I'm like, no. I'm gonna
3: drink this. You can kill me. It's fine. Like it's, I'll I'll or, try to call him Ty from now on if I can remember. But he's probably gonna be Mel.
0: That's all right. We'll call him Mel. Fuck it. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, uh, that deer scene, they didn't go too in detail to it, but I think it's, like, the first kind of, like, hint that establishes that Warren isn't quite the macho guy that he he thinks he is. And I'm not even saying that character is necessarily a bad guy or, like, full of shit. He's, he's not really. He's just the kind of guy who has been used to being sort of the number one leader kind of guy, and he runs into a situation that he's never experienced before, and he can't deal with it. Like that's that's the big thing with his character,
3: but he knows enough to lie to keep everybody calm.
0: Well, he 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 tries his best because he's he sort of he's probably lived his whole life being the natural leader role where he tells everyone you know, calm down, it's going to be all right, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But he's never probably been in a situation where he's had real conflict in his life at all, like any sort of serious situation. So when he finally starts to run into serious situations, it just totally fucks him up. Like, he he can't deal with it. Like, he's never experienced it before. So he's, he's basically had his masculinity challenged, essentially, by, by the events in this film. I think it works pretty well. The, the film, uh, Jeff Lieberman, the director, he was influenced by Deliverance, and I think that shows through in the film quite a bit because there's sort of like that. There's sort of a naturalistic kind of feel to the film. I'll go to you, Daniel, now, for your initial thoughts on the film. Sure. This is
2: uh, of the ones we've viewed in the Slasher series so far. This is actually my favorite of the ones we viewed. I actually thought this was uh, really effective. Gave me a lot to think about on a, on a kind of thematic level, um, which I might get into here in a moment. I have no preference one way or the other whether the door is prevalent or not, but I, I do kind of appreciate that, uh, you know, th- there's not a lot of gore in this film. You really no. get the one kind of big effect at the beginning and then once that's over, there's really no other gore in the film. Yeah. Um, the, the kills are, are a little bit more creative yeah, you know, or, or not even creative as much as they're just, like, they're, they're varied. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, a guy dies just
3: by falling into a river, you know, sort of Oh, thing. yeah, um, but that's a real kick in the face for him, if you know what I mean. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. I mean,
2: I'm, I'm, in, I'm in no way disagreeing with, like, yeah, you would die from that happening. But, you know, there, there's not a sense of, like, you know, we have to... You know, I love the Savini effects, you know, the, or the Savini-style effects, but I like the fact that, you know, we don't have to have that in every film. I thought that kind of character dynamics were interesting, Uh, these characters are kind of drawn in very quickly and then kind of fleshed out over the course of the film. I would have a lot to say about the Constance character towards the end. I think we're going to talk about it here shortly. I think for me the the big uh, picture is uh, I do wish that we got a little bit more fleshed out with the kind of family that's living on on the mountain and this kind of larger society. I think that the film is playing. I mean, you mentioned Deliverance, which is obviously... um, A big influence here. I think that there's a lot of kind of interesting stuff that the film could have done with the the kind of dichotomy between kind of hill people and civilization and and these people living on on hills, you know, in kind of Appalachia or in this kind of out of the way place in Oregon who are kind of outside the reach of, of 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 standard civilization who are kind of living as as hermits to a certain degree yeah. i wish we got to see more about that family dynamic i wish we had just a little bit more breathing space with them to kind of see how they see what's going on in this uh, world because once you've introduced them, they kind of don't do anything with them, and I would have liked to have seen more of that. I think that uh, the film is definitely playing with those dynamics. And just the fact that the uh, Clark Gregg character, um, or Greg Henry, sorry, I was using Clark Gregg, it's Greg Henry, right? Yeah. Um, my apologies. Uh, Greg Henry, uh, His his character is, you know, he inherits this mountain. Like, I own this mountain, according to this court off in civilization somewhere, but obviously I don't own it in the sense of, like, there are people living on this land who own it in a more kind of authentic, realistic sense, and I, I think that the film could have played with that a little bit more.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think... Like if it doesn't matter how old your farmstead is, if you don't pay taxes one year, the government takes it. Right. That kind of thing. Right. Or
2: or just, just the fact that, um you know, there is this kind of battle. Like, if you look at uh, kind of a history through an anarchist lens... There is this uh, kind of battle between uh, civilization and the people who are not quote-unquote civilized, i.e. don't live in cities... Uh, but who nonetheless may or may not have perfectly valid uh, systems of like, governing themselves that do not involve civilization. And, uh, I mean, that's kind of a big 5,000-year-old picture, which is probably outside the scope of this podcast. But um, it, it definitely uh, brought those sorts of ideas to mind in the sense of, like, whenever I look at a horror film, I'm looking at, like, what is the central idea that this film is capitalizing on what is this kind of element what is the core of this film and here we really are looking at this kind of idea of like once you get out of the cities once you get into this kind of quote unquote unspoilt nature and then you find that there are people already living there who may or may not have your best interests at heart and uh, I do think that the relationship between the the family living there, I think ideally there's really like a, a whole town that's kind of living there just off of the corner that we don't see but I, I, what their relationship is with these uh, pair of brothers who are going off and killing people, I think that's an element that I would have liked to see more of, but I think what we do get to see is kind of tantalizing. Also, and I know I've been speaking for a long time, I want to say this is excellently directed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some amazing cinematography moments in this film, in um, particular one uh, late in the film where a, a lantern is used as a natural light. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um,
2: there's a there's a, a huge amount of stuff kind of going on in the corners of the frame and in the back of the frame. This is a film that rewards close watching in a way that a lot of these films don't. You know, A lot of times it's kind of very straightforward, even if it's confidently made. Uh, the the Wikipedia page list for this film uh, says the director uh, used a lot of compositions from Ingmar Bergman, like was inspired by Bergman. I totally believe that. Um, mm-hmm. th- this is this is a a wonderfully just beyond anything else. This is a wonderfully directed film, and I I just wanted to uh, to bring that up.
0: Yeah, and the director uh, Jeff Lieberman says he had not watched uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre before he directed this film. Although a lot of people kind of see like. Oh, this was definitely influenced by that, and he's like, "No, I hadn't seen it before that i'd had seen deliverance, and that was where my main kind of my main sort of influence came from and the original script for this film was much more religious based uh the original Jonas Middleton story was about religious cult of snake handlers up in the mountain, and basically most of that was just totally erased from the film. They tried to make it much more of a deliverance style thriller." kind of story. That's what we got on screen.
3: I could see it more if it was tried to be based out of North Carolina or something like that, you know, not Oregon. It, you know what I mean? Well, That's-
2: parts of, I mean, you gotta keep in mind, Oregon, Um, A, has this hugely racist history. I mean, why is Portland like this huge right white hipster uh, city? Because they kept black people out of it for like 100 years. That's just part of the history of Oregon. Marvin. I know
3: you were were saying about that you wanted more of a visceral lost in the wilderness more so than a camp or a city atmosphere to a horror movie that you were talking about last time in the podcast and Mm -hmm. this one definitely fits the bill for you Daniel. Oh absolutely.
2: I I talked a little bit more thematically about the film but I think it works on on a lot of levels and I think that just on the uh, we are kind of lost in the woods we are um, it takes a while for the actual kills to start you get a lot of Uh kind of fade up you get a lot of kind of menace you get a lot of stuff kind of happening that doesn't necessarily um feed directly into the there's a killer coming around and like murdering people uh, sort of element and it doesn't feel like wasted time whereas in uh some of these films it just you know just kind of like biding time until there's there's a kill i do wish that the uh, characters were a little bit more clearly drawn towards the beginning i think that you know you get a little bit of like a, oh it's a generic group of 20 people 20 something people like off and they're gonna die one by one. i think in a more modern context, we would get a little bit more kind of clear distinction from the beginning. But I mean, I think the film does a pretty good job of kind of using uh, these kind of broad archetypes. You know, you know that the redhead is is a little bit vain because she's she's putting on makeup, you know she cares about her makeup in the in the middle of the woods. um you know, you got the nerdy guy because he's carrying a camera and he's taking pictures of uh performances are good all the way around, I think, and um, yeah, sorry, I mean, I I just thought it was really effective, but I did like that, that element of, they're kind of lost in the woods, and they don't know what to do, and I think that's a, you know, they're they're not, there's not like a clear, you know, direction forward, like, it's not like, oh, and then we're going to go back to the camper and then drive the fuck away, because, like, we're kind of lost, you know, Yeah, and we don't necessarily know what's going on until it's too late.
3: That's why Um, I like uh, some films like uh, Mother's Day where it it takes a little bit more time in the beginning of the film to set up the actual nuances of the characters and why they're there, why they're going, and keeps it small, and it gets it enough where you can actually seem to feel them a little bit more so you can start to care about them before they get cut up.
0: Yeah, because I I liked all the characters in this film. I I, I thought they were all really well done. I I thought the acting was really good. Jamie Rose, I'll just put it out there right away. Like, I, I saw this film very early on, like, as a teenager... She was one of the first sort of hints to the fact that I really enjoyed redheads. <laughs> she she <laughs> was one of my
2: discovered your heterosexuality.
0: You know, she she was one of my first crushes. Definitely, uh, she looks great. I think her character is great. I think the film does a lot of really great sort of subtle hints for different things in this film. Um, the fact that she uses makeup, you know, she's she's concerned about her makeup, and then when you get to the scene where. She is killed in the church, where she is crying, and her makeup starts to leak, like her eyeshadow starts to leak and yeah. stuff. I think it's it, it really it's really effective. That scene itself is incredibly effective because it's all about what you don't see. Uh, That is is the reveal of the fact, and hey, spoilers, that the killers are twin killers. It's not just one big massive killer, it's two massive big twin killers. Yeah, one killer is outside taking photos of the camera that he just took from the, the dead geek character. The other killer is in there, and it's implied that perhaps they might have raped her before they killed her. Uh, There's just a lot of really nasty implications in that scene and it makes it really incredibly effective. I think also what's really effective is that the killers treat their victims like they are animals. They don't treat them like people at all. Just the fact that they take items of clothing, uh, the sunglasses, the vest, the hat, things like that, it makes it feel like hunters taking hides from animals. Like, it's very much the same kind of idea. So it makes these, like, these killers aren't really fleshed out as characters. Like, you don't really get to know who they are or what they're about. So it's those sort of notes that make these characters come alive on the screen and pop them out. As opposed to other characters other killers in other films like it, you don't it's really weird. get
3: too much from the characters in the woods and uh, it almost seems to me you know you uh, while I watched it the the redneck family in the woods could have easily not have even been there
0: yeah and it I, would
3: have I, still been just as effective to find an empty weird house with two people living in it and, and instead of the redneck family to talk a little bit and not really do anything.
0: Yeah, because the, the Mary Cat character, who is the, the daughter of, of the Redneck family, she really doesn't, like, that sort of subplot doesn't really go anywhere too much.
3: Doesn't really do anything, yeah. And,
0: and, and it feels like it's just sort of like a supplemental piece of the original script that just sort of remained.
2: It, afterwards. It feels, I agree with that. It feels like it's something that was originally something that was going to kind of do something a little bit more, mm-hmm. and then just kind of got dropped, but not dropped completely. Like it, it's sort yeah. of one of those things. Let's, that you let's keep
3: to, that girl in there who puts her makeup on in the dark. Perfect.
2: Although I, I liked that element of it. I liked the probably the thing that drew me into the film more than anything else was this kind of uh, you get this kind of nymph like character
3: kind of wandering through the woods. Well, yeah. And very very childlike yeah. and wandering and.
2: Well, in a lot of these films, I mean, you know, and I'm not not speaking as an expert, but of the ones that we've seen, you know, Madman Mars is just kind of this guy wandering around in the woods. He's just this killer. He he's like, and it's not only really, do we not get a motivation, we don't get like, what does he eat? What does he, you know, like, what 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 world does he live in? Like, what does this guy do when he's not stalking through the woods and killing people? And I think that the introduction of a kind of larger social context, even if it's just a family kind of living in the woods, who clearly have knowledge of these two guys, but who have kind of disavowed themselves of it to some degree, speaks to this kind of, it speaks to the motivation indirectly. Where you kind of get, okay, these guys are kind of going off and doing this, this kind of crazy thing and killing people. The family is aware of it. They are uh, refusing to get involved with it. And in fact, the, the big hero moment of the film, in some ways, is the, the nymph like character who, or Mary, I think it's her name, who yeah. uh, actually tells uh, the, the far stranger, like, oh no, this is where you can go find this guy. Like, in, in some ways, like, that leads to the, the ending of the film and the, and the kind of the big the, the climax. I mean, I think that's kind of where I land on. Like, I mean, the, the character, the family in the woods, even in this kind of truncated form, work thematically. And they work to kind of build this larger world, um, even though they don't have necessarily a direct influence on the plot. Mm-hmm. They just kind of work as, as kind of a warning or
3: whatever. Um, so, is it up to the young youth to stop the dogma of contoning the evil that's out there? I, I I think that is kind of what the film is trying to say to some degree. I gotta leave now. I'm I'm I gotta I gotta. This is too deep. <laughs> I, I gotta, gotta go go to
2: watch more. Go. Hell, hell hell, I gotta get out of here. Can, can I speak to the ending uh, briefly since we uh, have
3: mentioned that we're going to talk about that?
0: Yeah, are we going to just go into uh, Constance's uh, character change in the film? I think that's what we're talking about. for the Where, end- yeah. gonna, where,
3: the, where the film turns into Deep Throat? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think we should definitely go into that because this is I'll just say, and I'll let you guys expand on it, but I'll, I'll just say this out front this is my favorite slasher in the woods film. This is Hands down, my favorite Slasher in the Woods film. And partly because of the way the final girl becomes the final girl in this film, I think her character change is realistic and excellent because she does not come out of her change unscarred. Actually, comes out of it probably worse in the end. Yeah, I'll just go to you, uh, Daniel, first. Uh, What are are your thoughts on uh, basically Constance's character change in the end of this film?
2: Sure, well, uh, at the beginning, I mean, uh, she comes across, at least to me, as the most generic of the of the characters um, at the beginning, you know, where you kind of get character traits for everybody, except for, oh, and then there's the pretty blonde girl. Mm-hmm. Um, the one who kind of looks a little bit like De- Deborah Harry. That's kind of all I kept yeah. thinking while I was watching it. Um, they're even listening to Blondie at the beginning, I think. So, yes. So, you know, it definitely uh, plays <laughs> to that. Um, you know, as uh, literally as she changes from her pants into the short shorts... Mm. Um, which I appreciated, by the way. I'm not yeah. going to say, you know, that uh, that that was definitely a. Uh, I, I'm I'm lascivious enough, a heterosexual male to uh, to appreciate that. What I found interesting, at least in, in the kind of final scene, I'm not going to speak so much about the character change, but I thought that what was really interesting is that when we talked about the prowler, we talked about how the two of the female characters are most sexualized at the moment that they are victimized. Mm -hmm. Um, At the moment that uh, they are killed, that's when you kind of see the kind of sexualization most overtly. Um, In this film, the, uh, the blind Constance is most sexualized and most authentically kind of earthy, real character when she is triumphant over the killer. Um, when she is kind of writhing on top of him, uh, when she has killed him and succeeded, uh, which strikes me as a very kind of overt visual image. Um, again, speaking to the strength of d- the direction, you see that she has uh, kind of embraced this kind of guttural, violent nature in terms of uh, fighting back against this this monster force, uh, this bestial instinct, mm-hmm. and that um, it is that that moment where you see her, you know, kind of again most sexualized but also most human uh, which I thought was was really fascinating and really just a powerful image uh, again speaking back to the direction for the film
0: cuz it, it's kind of weird cuz like we're still talking about like 1980 1981 era where well like we said before in a previous episode this genre was not defined at this point like we did not have the sort of tropes where oh the final girl this and that you know we we, we didn't really have that established to to some degree and you look at this character, and if you look at it with modern eyes, uh, looking back at it, uh, you look at a lot of slasher films, the killer is generally, they have a knife, they have some sort of stabbing weapon, it's generally kind of like a phallic symbol. She ends up penetrating the killer. <laughs> in a very, in a very fucking uh, visceral way, she ends up penetrating the killer with her own fucking fist and forearm. I've and, heard that and,
3: line too. I'm gonna shove my fist down your throat, but I've never actually seen it in a film. So this is yeah. two times.
0: Before that, you kind of kind of see that she realizes the reality of the situation. Her boyfriend is still trying to calm her down. Take charge, but at that point, you know he's broken. He, he he can't deal with the situation anymore. He is, it's like, yeah, I, I've been the macho guy for all my life, but I've never been confronted by anything serious. And now that I'm confronted by something serious, I just can't deal with it. And, of course, by the end, he's a quivering fucking mess. Whereas, she, the,
2: whereas Constance rises to the occasion and is uh, hardened by this uh, yeah. Process and eventually succeeds.
0: And you and you get the feeling that Constance is either uh, going into a menstrual institution, or at the very at the very least, she's gonna like find a find a dude who you know is much more confident in the end. Uh, but um, well, she's grown beyond her boyfriend. I mean,
2: you know, mm-hmm. like in in this,
0: you know, this not
2: to not to speak out of turn. I apologize, but this happens a lot with people who go through. Highly traumatic things is you know you you kind of can see what the people around you what the other people who have gone through it uh, how they respond and even in your in, even in your day to day life you know when you know <laughs> when when you're out of money when you're broke for a week until paycheck, you know what is your partner what is your boyfriend or girlfriend or your wife or your husband or or what have you how do they respond to that it teaches you a lot about that person. And, you know, so so few of us, I mean, obviously very few of us are ever going to be in a situation where we're being literally stalked by a killer in the woods. You know, but when you are challenged by something that is, you know, this kind of existential threat, how you respond to that teaches you a lot about yourself as a person and about the people around you. And honestly, since most of us haven't been challenged by that, we don't know how we'd respond. And I I think that um, this does have a lot to say. I mean, the, the film speaks pretty eloquently about this kind of process. All of the different characters respond to this threat differently. I think Constance really, I mean, she comes out in the end as, as the victor, as the, as the, you know, kind of the most respectable character, because she um,
3: is hardened by, this, by the fire, essentially, you know.
0: Yeah. Alright, uh, so I'll go to you, Paul, first for uh, your final thoughts on this film.
3: Oh, Final thoughts. It's it's a great film. I mean, the like uh, we've already talked about the cinematography, the directing, the the characters, the kills. You know, uh, I I do appreciate when the guy climbs up the rope. I'm be all right, and he get kicks in the fake and it, puts down to the river. Like I love that little that comical kick in the face. Like, nah, sorry, buddy. Uh, they do play the, up the fact that there is only one killer for quite a while. Yeah. Until the church scene, I believe it was, was when they actually showed the two killers. I, had, you know, a lot of these films do do a hulking, like large redneck hulking killer, but then they have them like, you know, like sprinting through the woods and doing this and doing this, and I'm like, I've, that doesn't. We we walk for like ten feet and go, hold on, just wait, I gotta catch my breath, just stop running, <laughs> wait, be nice. We we're fat, we can't run all the time. Excuse me. But uh, it's it's a good film. I think it's a it's a, it's a great one for the for the genre for the style. I mean it's 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 actually you could actually after I've heard about the Deliverance, you can definitely see the resemblance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Overall, I like it. Uh, I like uh, I uh, the one guy that I know from the film besides uh, Kev- uh, Mike and George, it was Greg Henry. I actually watched him on the uh, 1987 series. I like Cole Werewolf. He played a cameo in the episode uh, "Nightmare in Blue," where he played a psychopathic killer posing as a police officer, killing bad people, prostitutes, and whatnot. So it was pretty interesting to go back and realize that was him. So it's hey, look, there you go, cool. Uh, yeah. But overall, yeah, it was a good film. I really liked it. I do like the deep throat kill. That was just really weird. I mean, it's like, is this happening right now? All right, is this almost porn? It looks almost porny, but uh, it, it was good. I like it. I like the fact that that Greg is basically, or Warren is just writhing on the floor, and you're like you, it's just a side when You're gonna get up and save the day, right? No? Mm-hmm. no, no, you're still down, still down. Not gonna crawl, find a stick, nothing. Okay, cool. And she looks down, then she sees him just laying there, and then she starts kicking and fighting and saying, "Screw you, we're not doing this." And yep. it reminds me of my first date a lot. <laughs>
0: Yeah, awesome. Uh Daniel, what's what's your final thoughts on this film?
2: Really great. I mean, a really great film for the genre. Uh I would I would definitely watch this again. Uh really enjoyable. Uh one element, one one moment or scene that I thought was really effective, um that that worked for me personally. Um you guys uh, I don't think either of you wear glasses or contacts, but uh I am I'm blind as a bat without my glasses <laughs> and uh the uh, scene where the kind of nerdy character, a, a, there's no way if he can't see that well he's going to go that long without his glasses. <laughs> but um, if he, uh, the scene where he is uh, kind of being stalked by the killer without his glasses, um that that's one of those just primal fears for me. Like I don't even like taking a shower because I can't wear my glasses in the shower. Yeah. It's just kind of one of those things. You know, I wish they'd done a little bit more with that. But uh, it's definitely like that. That felt really realistic to me to some degree. Like he doesn't have his glasses. He just can't see the dude. Like he doesn't, you know, see that at all. And I mean, he's making out with the redhead at that point. So you know, what what else are you gonna, you know? Yeah, like, you're I, not I, done. I, I'm not I, thinking too hard be, about it.
0: I would yeah. be so distracted at that point. Yeah, but. he's
2: he's he. You know, he probably has the best death just in the sense of like, well, if you're gonna go out, you might as well go out. That
0: yeah. Way. You know, that's you know. so Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh yeah that's just another great setup in this film I love this film um just just taking his vision into account that was an excellent setup because the killer of course is doing the thing where it's like stealing stealing different people's items of clothing so he's he's got this blurred vision he sees his brother's uh flannel jacket on the killer and so he thinks it's his brother so that that's really effective. It's really well done. I like. I also like the uh, waterfall scene where you see the killer coming down through the waterfall and going under the water. Like just just really well done. Like that that sort of harkens back to Halloween where you see the killer in frame, but the characters don't see the killer. So it has that really effective kind of thing going. I love this film. I really do. Uh, I think it's one of the most effective slasher films I've ever seen. It it is in my top three of slasher films, just behind Black Christmas and Halloween. Um, it's just really well done. It's it's one of those obscure ones that a lot of people haven't seen, and it's a big disservice. It's a, it's a real short, sort of a shame, because it's a great fucking film, and more people should see it. Um, and uh, uh,
2: Mount St. Helens erupted during the production of this film.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll just say here... It was released on DVD in 2005 uh, from Media Blasters, uh, their Shriek show kind of uh, sub-label. You can still kind of find copies of that on eBay and Amazon, I believe. It basically didn't show up on much of anything else. Uh, I think Code Red did it as well in 2013, but... Uh, it has a very sort of varied uh, release. You can still see it on YouTube. And honestly, the YouTube version is about as good as the DVD prints that you find out. Like, my, my DVD print, honestly, it's about as good as the fucking YouTube prints. So uh, just just watch it on YouTube. And if you like it, then fucking find the Media Blasters version and fucking own it. Yeah, it, it's a great film. I love it, and uh, that's all I really have to say about it. So, uh, any anything else? Any you guys want to add to it before we uh, sign off? Or
3: I well, think I gotta say is just remember: in the woods, no one can hear your emergency whistle.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I actually. Or if they yeah. can,
2: they will misinterpret the emergency whistle as a uh, you know as you
3: fooling around. Well, Damn, that, uh, they always falling the around.
0: Actually, that's one of the things I forgot to mention was the uh, soundtrack on this one. Uh, really really good atmospheric soundtrack. Brad Fidel, basically it was electronically altered audio clips of him vocalizing droning noises uh, for, for the sort of electronic soundtrack. And the whistle thing was sort of a... Uh, foreshadowing to the whistle motif where the killer stole the guy's whistle and shit like that. So uh, that that was in mind for the film. I think it's pretty effective. It's really well done.
3: Apparently at 5019, when Daniel approaches the cemetery to take a picture, a boom mic is visible and for a few seconds before it realizes it didn't frame and then pulls out.
0: Ah, I didn't even see it. <laughs> so, so there you go. There you go. Thanks for ruining the movie, Paul. And therefore, the movie is terrible. Oh, uh, no, it's all just dark shadows. Yeah. All right, so uh, Daniel, tell us about your Doctor Who podcast.
2: Sure. If you uh, like listening to me talk about schlocky stuff in uh, much more detail and over-intellectualizing everything, you should listen to my Doctor Who podcast. It probably helps if you're a fan of Doctor Who. But uh, we do classic and new series. I do it with my wife. It's pretty awesome. We just covered the 10th Doctor story turn left. And uh, going forward, we're going to be uh, finishing up the Key to Time season, uh, which is uh, from the classic series, and then kind of move on. So uh, check that out. If you're so inclined, you can find that at oyspaceman, spaceman all one word, dot Com. Nice.
0: Paul, where can we find you on the interweb?
3: Well, you can find me at PA Brew News uh, on Facebook and then PA Brew News, one word on YouTube, watching me do beer reviews and whatnot. Uh, and then uh, YouTube, Funeral Dust 666, one word for some underground black metal from PA.
0: Awesome. And I'm not sure what we're going to go for uh, music as far as uh, these. We're going to have
3: to play some Blondie.
0: Hey, okay. Blondie, well, yeah.
3: That, that's right. That's the obvious choice.
0: All right, obvious obvious copyright strike. We're going to go for Blondie. That's great. Uh, (laughs) So uh, thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Please send your fucking comments in. We got the uh, little trailer going at the end where you can uh, find us and send us comments and tell us how much we suck or how awesome we are. Either way, we love it, and we'll respond to it. So uh, good night, everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you again in a little while. Bye-bye.
3: Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on site. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We Listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.